Well, uh, if you've been with us for any length of time at FBC, we've been going through the book of Romans, and this morning we come to a new section. Kevin closed out Romans 12 for us and did an excellent job, and so super thankful for him. And uh, we are going to start now in Romans chapter 13 after Easter, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And this whole section is really a section about authority, about authority. And so the title of this morning's sermon is, Who's in Charge Anyway?, Who's in charge anyway? And what we're going to be covering is this issue of Christians and government. How do Christians relate to the government? Now, obviously, this is a touchy topic, causes lots of discussion, particularly in recent days. This has been a very serious discussion point uh, in the American church, especially, and internationally as well. And so even sort of as we walk out on the thin ice here, uh, my request of you as a church is that as we consider these verses, it's impossible to say everything that needs to be said in one sermon. We just can't. And so I would encourage you to hear this sermon series all the way through. You know, I think there are times when you can hear a sermon, you know, and you hear something said from the pulpit or have a discussion, and you can, we can find ourselves quick to evaluate a single argument or a single point in a sermon or a single idea and decide that it doesn't answer all the questions that we might have, and so we reject that idea because it doesn't consider everything that's there. But I want us to come as a church to this passage particularly with humility and above everything else to listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say. This is important. It's important for us to say that. We need to hear from Paul. And why is that so important to say it that way? Well, there's a lot of opinions about this topic, a lot of opinions, and a lot of very public opinions about this topic. But we want to listen to Paul. We don't want to listen to anybody else. We want Paul and Christ through Paul to instruct us. Why is that? Well, because as Christians, we are called to obey God. We're called to obey God. We must obey Him. And if God has commanded us to do something or to be something, then we must do those things or be those things. We must as Christians. And so that's where we have to start from as we think through this topic of the Christian and government. We want to hear what God tells us. And so this morning what we're going to do is look at the first two verses and then we'll continue on from there next week. So just look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and let's listen to what Paul says. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves." So what I want to do is walk through this step by step, this text, and that brings us to our first point, which is the command, the command. Paul, this is interesting, starts this passage with a single one-sentence command, and then everything that comes after that command in chapter 13, verse 1, all the way down to verse 7, is defending that command. That's very interesting. Why, Why would he do that? In fact, in chapter 12, he's given us all sorts of commands. In fact, they're almost on top of each other. If you look back up in chapter 12, notice what he does. Starting in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. That's a command. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It's a command. He, He doesn't defend those commands at all. He just states them. But here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, he makes one command, and then he defends that command with seven verses of reasoning. Why would he do that? I think he would do that because Paul understood that this was just as controversial in his day as it is in ours. 
and that he has to address a large number of issues and, and things that might come up in the hearts of his readers. And so when we look at this first command, there's three components to it, three components. The first one is in point A, in submission, in submission. When Paul thinks about government, civil government, the word that comes to mind in his mind and heart under the inspiration of the Spirit is submission. And that's the main controlling imperative, the main controlling command in this passage. So what does it mean to be in submission to something? Well, the NAS translates it subjection, uh, verse 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. What does it mean? Well, the verb is actually very common in the New Testament. It's used over 40 times, and six of those times are in the book of Romans. Three times it's used in Romans chapter 8, once in Romans chapter 10, and then twice here in Romans chapter 13. And every single time that the word is used in the previous chapters, that word is used about submission to God, not to people. That there is submission to God. God subjects the created order under his authority. God calls us to be in subjection. He says the Jews were not in subjection to him. They weren't in submission to him. And so the idea here in the context of Romans is that submission and subjection is to God. It is to God. The term was used in the military for authority. It meant to arrange yourself underneath an authority that was above you and then to obey what the, com- what the commander or the leader told you to do. Uh, the leader had authority over the one who was led, and so they had the right to give them commands. They had the authority to give commands, and those commands were to be obeyed. And so when Paul uses that word here, he's being intentional, right? The command to us as Christians is that we are to be obeying our governing authorities. We are to be in submission, in subjection to them, and that we would obey them. Paul is calling for us to be obedient, obedient Christians. In fact, he says this in other places too. Flip over to Titus chapter 3 with me. Look there. Titus chapter 3 in verse 1. Now, as always, we'd like you to flip. It's always best to see it. If you're using a digital Bible, you can click there. But either way, whichever way you want to get there, get there so you can see this. Paul here is talking to the Cretans, and earlier in the book, he tells us that Cretans aren't the best people, right? That's why we can use the word Cretan the way that we do now. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, remind them to be subject to rulers. Same exact idea, to put themselves under the rulers. And then he says to authorities, to be obedient, right? Submission, subjection is obedience. And then he says to be ready for every good deed. Submit themselves, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient people to those who are over them. We are called by God through Paul, to submit ourselves to governing authorities, to be in subjection to the government. It's important. There's more here in this verse. Look back in Romans chapter 13, the command again. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And this is point B, all governments. The two words that are used here in Greek are are the word for authority and then a compound word that means to have over. So, So what's he saying? He's saying we are to be in subjection to those who have authority over us, all who have authority over us, the governing authorities. In other words, Paul is talking about those who have authority over us as Christians. And what you notice here is that the phrase is left intentionally general, isn't it? 
He's not, he's not specific at all. He doesn't give us any specifics, really. He just generally says, those who have authority over you are the ones you are to submit to. He doesn't give any kind of references to Roman jurisprudence or the state of the nation or the state of the empire or whether or not Nero was the appropriate authority at this time, all of which was debated at the time in the Roman world. Paul doesn't address any of those things. He just says, whoever has authority over you, you are to be in submission to. And he gives no caveat, right? He doesn't say anything about like representation or citizenship or anything like that. He, he doesn't say only in democracies should you be in submission to those who you voted for. There's nothing in there like that, right? He doesn't say only in constitutional monarchies. He doesn't say only in situations where there's a benevolent dictatorial regime. He doesn't mention financial oligarchies. He doesn't say anything about government theory whatsoever. Why? Why is it so general? Well, the answer is because there is no caveat. There is no caveat for this command. We are to be in subjection, in submission to our governing authorities. There's no caveat regarding whether the government is good or not good, whether we like their decisions or we don't like their decisions. There's also no caveat regarding times when there are competing branches of government or disagreement in the government or changes in governing structure that happens inside of the government or that there is some kind of revolution or other means by which the government is changed. None of that is addressed here in any way. Now, Paul could have said all of that. Paul said lots of things, right? He wrote a ton, but he doesn't say any of those things because he doesn't want to. He just says that submission is to be given to those who have political authority over us. We must submit to governing authorities. And that would obviously include all layers of government, right? All the way from like legally enforced homeowners associations, all the way up to the President of the United States and everything in between, municipal governments, everything, everything that we are commanded and that we are told to do by government, we must obey. We must obey it. Now, that's hard. But that's not just Paul. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Flip there with me. 1 Peter 2. Peter says effectively the exact same thing. Again, turn. These are important verses. Underline them if you'd like. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, submit, same word, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. <laughs> There's just no caveat, nothing in there where you, have, where you can say, well, human institutions that I like or the good ones or ones that are obedient or ones that are helpful. No, nothing there, right? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he sort of just generalizes this. He says, whether to a king or an emperor is the one who is in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. He says, submit yourselves to every human authority. We are compelled by God to submit ourselves to every governing agency and every government authority over us. The one who has authority over us at this moment, we are compelled to submit to. And as Christians, we must do that. We must submit to them. Now again, I know that as I say that, in your mind, it brings up a host of questions, right? There's like a thousand hypotheticals that sort of spread out from that, and I understand that. But just keep walking through the text with me because it's important to see this. And there's one more thing in the command. If you flip back to Romans chapter 12 again, look there. I mean, Romans chapter 13. Sorry, we've been in 12 a long time. 
Romans chapter 13. Look at chapter 13. In the beginning of the verse, it says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every person. That word in Greek is not person, it's the word soul. Now, why is that important? This is point C on your outline. What Paul is saying is that all people, every soul, every person, every single person, believer or unbeliever, all of them are to be in submission to the governing authorities. Everyone, everywhere, under every type of government. Let me say that again. Everyone, everywhere, under every type of government or form of government and in every place is to be in submission to the authorities that are over them at all times. That would obviously include those in ancient Rome, right? And that would include here in America as well. There's no time stamp on how long this command lasts. There's no geography. And there's no caveats about what type of government it is. In other words, this is a global command from God for all people that lasts forever. Forever. Long story short, as Christians, we are supposed to obey the government. There's no caveats. There's no exception clauses. There's no godly revolution statements, <laughs> right? There's nothing about resistance, nothing. Just submission to the authorities that are currently actively ruling over us. That's it. And that's what we're commanded to do. They might say, well, I don't like that at all. I don't like my government. My government is evil. I don't get a vote. I'm being oppressed, etc." But Paul doesn't give us any of those things. He doesn't. And in fact, instead of giving those things, he actually provides for us the basis for why we must do this. And this is point two, the basis. So we have the command, and now we have the basis for that command. And now, as I said, this would have been just as controversial for the Romans as it is for us today. That's why Paul provides all of this clarification. It would have been just as controversial for them as it is for us. So what's the basis for this command? How can we, as Christians, submit to unbelieving authorities who are over us? There's a couple points here. Look first at point A, God's authority. Now, notice what he says in verse 1. This is fascinating. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for. When you have the word for, what's it doing? It's telling you why that's necessary. It's giving you a description. It's helping you to understand what's in Paul's mind when he gives that command. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, again, Paul likes to put things negatively and positively, and so we want to look at both of those. And the first thing is the negative side of it. Paul says there is no authority except from God, or literally by God, right? All authority that is held by all rulers at all times on the planet, everywhere, is mediated by God himself. Every authority that exists, and there is no authority that exists except what God has mediated out from his power and authority, all rulers, all authorities are from him. Now, that does not mean that all authorities use their authority wisely or that they're good authorities or that they're helpful authorities. It doesn't mean any of those things. All it means is that God is the one who grants that authority to every king and every ruler that exists on the planet. Every single person, every single authority in the world has come from God, and there is no authority that is outside of God's command and authority. The rulers that govern our nation and every nation on the planet for all time are directly from God. There is no authority on earth that is not a direct work of God himself. 
Now think about that for a minute. Nero, not the best of people, right? He's famously bad. Even for secular historians, the emperor Caligula, also not a helpful guy to have an authority for the Christians, right? Kaiser Wilhelm, who started World War I, Adolf Hitler, World War II, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Kim Jong-un, just to name a few, just to name a few, that's just a few of these guys who had authority. But none of those men were acting with authority that was outside of the authority of God. God wasn't in heaven wringing his hands, trying to figure out how to stop what was going on, trying to turn the bus off that turnpike. He wasn't worried. Evil as those men were, God was in authority over them, and all of them, past or present, had that authority from God, and there was nothing that was not from God. Now, I know that begs a host of questions because these, pe- these men have done and continue to do tons of evil things in the world, don't they? So how can God be in control of men who do evil things? And there's no chance we can answer that question here. <laughs> but if you want to think about evil and God's sovereignty, we walked through those realities in Romans chapter 9, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. But this is the teaching of Scripture, isn't it? This is what God is saying. In fact, remember Jesus, even facing death at the hands of Pilate, said exactly this thing. Remember, Chris read it for us this morning in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? He asked Jesus where he's from, and Jesus doesn't give him an answer. And Pilate says, you're not going to answer me? Like, he's offended that Jesus won't talk back to him. He says, you're not going to answer me? He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus, unruffled, gives this answer. You would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. If you're Pilate at that moment, what do you do? (laughs) It tells us what he did. In verse 12, it said, for this reason, all the more he sought to release him. Pilate's standing there and thinking, you know, that's probably true. And he's scared of what this man and who this man is. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Jesus, whose, ha- whose life is in the hands of this man, who has the authority to crucify him, looks at him and says, you have zero authority, none that hasn't been given to you from God. And Pilate wasn't a righteous man, right? You remember the stories of Pilate. He went and he killed the Jews and he mingled their blood with the sacrifices. He was an evil man. He did evil things to the nation of Israel, not just to the nation of Israel, but to many people. He was an evil ruler. And yet Jesus himself affirms Pilate's authority, and he says that authority is not from Caesar, and it's not because of Roman laws, and it's not because of him, but it is ultimately due to God. God was in control of Pilate. God is the one who put Pilate in front of Jesus that day. So Paul gives us this negative thing. There is no authority except from God, but he also gives us a positive side. He says those which exist are established by God, and this is point B, God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Now, obviously, nothing exists apart from God's sovereignty, and yet there is also this idea, this positive side, that those which exist are established by God, that God positively has placed authority into every situation. Not only just that there's nothing outside of, but that God has positively placed them in those situations. The King James Version translates this, the powers that be. We use that phrase sometimes, the powers that be are established by God. That statement is important, right? Paul is saying that the powers that exist at the moment that you read this and at the moment when he wrote it 
are established by God himself. Every power, every government at every moment is established by God and will be removed by God in its time. Think about this. When Ronald Reagan was elected, that was God who made that happen. Some of you might say, great. When Barack Obama was elected, that was God who made that happen. When Donald Trump was elected, that was God who made that happen. And when Joe Biden was elected, it was God who caused that to happen. Every ruler that we have has come to us directly under the sovereign authority of God. And every power that exists is from God. Daniel says in Daniel 2.21, he says, It is he who changes times and epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. And he does it in his free and sovereign will. Now, some commentators say that Paul was writing about the powers who were present in his day as well, specifically. He's saying the powers that be were established by God. In other words, the Roman emperor Nero, he came from God. He's established by God. Obviously, it's true. That's true, but that's true universally as well, right? It's always the truth that God has established every authority. And what Paul is telling his readers here is that Nero was placed on the throne by God himself. So what's our conclusion in all of this? Who's in charge? God's in charge. God is always in charge. There's never a time when God isn't in charge. He's in charge of every politician, every political activist, every group, every single thing that exists politically over us comes from God himself. Listen, Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is the king of the world. And he is bringing about its perfect end. So Paul says, listen, submit yourselves to every governing institution. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities. And do that because God is your true and eternal king. Do it because God's your king. He's in charge of them. He's over every king, every ruler who exists over us. All of them are under the absolute sovereign power of God. And so when we submit to them, we're not ultimately submitting to them. We're ultimately submitting to God, aren't we? We're submitting to his rule over us. And for us to do that, we have to believe that God is good and that he loves us, and that his purposes are good purposes, even though in the moment they may not feel good or look good to us. So what is Paul's conclusion from this command? How does he sort of put teeth to this? And this is point three, the conclusion. This is very profound, what he draws out here in verse two. Look what he says. He says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, there's two things that we have to see here. The first one is under point A, resistance. Resistance to government is, therefore, resistance to who? To God. Resisting governing authorities is to resist God. And I think for us, that's a crazy statement to make because we sort of believe in resistance as like an American ideal. I mean, our country was founded on resistance and revolution, wasn't it? So what can we say? We, we think of resistance and we think, well, that's a good thing to be resisting government. But Paul says, no. In fact, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. In resisting authority, we're opposing God. And the words in Greek are very graphic. The word for submit is hupotasso, to put yourself under someone. And the word for resistance is antitasso, to refuse to be under someone. That's all he's saying. He's saying if you refuse to be under the governing authorities that are over you, you are rejecting God's ordinance. 
You're rejecting God's ordinance for you. If God has ordained the leader who's over us and and we're supposed to submit to him, not because he's worthy or good, but because God put him there, then ultimately to reject that authority is to reject God's authority. To resist government is to resist God's will. And it's so fascinating how he says it, isn't it? Look what he says. He says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. We've We've stood against the ordinance of God. We've resisted the very order that God has planned. We're resisting his plan for the world when we resist government. It's foolish to resist his will. And resistance to government is nothing more than just practical atheism, isn't it? We're just practically refusing to believe that God has authority over those men, who over, men and women who are over us. Now, I know we live in an age with, that is just filled with calls for resistance. Everywhere you look, there's calls for resistance. On both sides of the political aisle, it doesn't matter. Everyone's telling you to resist something, right? Resist, fight back. That's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. But listen, that's nothing new, Right? That's nothing new. This is always how it's been. There's always been resistance in Paul's day and in our day and everything in between. There's always been resistance to these things. But all of that resistance was resisting God. It was resisting God. So listen, friends, as Christians, God is calling us to submit ourselves to government. That's what he wants us to do. We shouldn't resist his authority. There's an amazing statement at the end of this verse. Look at Verse 2 again, he says, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That's an amazing sentence, isn't it? This is point B, opposition. He says, the one who opposes government will receive condemnation. Condemnation upon themselves. Opposition here is the same idea as resistance in the previous phrase. When you oppose government, you ultimately receive condemnation. So here's the question. What kind of condemnation is this? Is this eternal condemnation that you will be eternally condemned because of your rejection? Or is this temporal condemnation that the government will condemn you because of your opposition? It could be either, but it's interesting. I don't think we have to make a choice here. I think it's both. A person who is abjectly unwilling to submit to God by submitting to their authorities is in active rebellion to God. And a person who is actively rebelling against the sovereignty of the God who loves them and who is in control of everything over them, a person who is in that state is putting their soul at risk. A person who refuses to submit to the authority of God in government who says, I will not submit to the governing authorities. A person who refuses to do that, though they see that it is what the Bible commands them to do, is not a Christian. It's important. It's important. Obviously, perhaps a person could actively choose to not submit to governing authorities and rebel against God, and what will happen to them? Over that course of time, God will discipline them. A true believer will be disciplined by God if they are in this state of rebellion. And that will come, according to Paul, through the condemnation of the government. The government will come and discipline them. And so either way, opposition to governing authorities is unrighteous. Either way. And Paul's promise is that opposition 
Now notice, look at the verse again. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It is promised. You will receive condemnation eventually. And so, don't resist authority. Don't resist authority. Paul calls us as Christians to actively and consistently submit to governing authorities, to do so with a humble heart because doing so is submitting to God's sovereign rule and care over us. This is what he would have us to do. Now I know there's probably a host of questions in your mind and thoughts and you know, making arguments with me in your head and that's okay, I understand that. There's probably a thousand hypotheticals and I want to just deal with a couple of implications that flow out of these two verses. This is point four, Implications. There's a couple things I think we need to state right out of the gate. The first one is under point A, obedience to God. This is important. Ultimately, obedience to government is not obedience to government, is it? At the end of the day, when we obey government, we're not actually obeying the government. It looks like that on the outside. We're submitting ourselves to every institution, to every governing authority, but that's not actually who we're obeying at that moment. Who are we actually obeying when we submit ourselves to government? We're obeying God. God has told us to do that, and God has told us that he's sovereign over the government that is over us, and therefore we obey God by obeying government. That tells us something so important. When the government calls us to disobey God, who should we obey? Because God says, obey the government, and then the government tells us, disobey God, who do we obey? And the answer is, we always obey who? God, right? Turn to Acts chapter 5. So interesting. The beginning, book, the beginning of the book of Acts, you have Peter over and over again with the other apostles standing up and proclaiming the gospel. And over and over again, the Jewish leaders come to them and they say, you don't have the right to do this. And they beat them and they do all sorts of things to them to try to silence them. And they tell them, do not preach the gospel. That's what they tell Peter and the apostles. Look at verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, that is the name of Jesus, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. <laughs> we told you not to do that. You're not allowed to preach the gospel. You can't talk about Jesus. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us, given to those who obey him. What does Peter do? <laughs> they say, you're not allowed to preach Jesus. And what does Peter say? Well, we're gonna obey God, and let me preach Jesus. <laughs> It's amazing. He literally disobeys them in the moment of the conversation. He disobeys them and preaches Christ to them. Why? Because Peter says, it's better to obey God than men. We must obey God over men. And so if the government were to tell us, were to command us to not obey God, what must we do? We must disobey government. We must disobey government. For example... The one-child policy in China, just to take something real extreme. You have one child, and you discover that you're pregnant or that your wife is pregnant, and the government tells you you can have only one child. You need to get an abortion. What do you say? No. I will not 
kill my child. That would be sin against God. I will not commit this sin against God. I won't. They say, well, then we're going to shoot you. And what do you say? Okay. Maybe not quite that smiley. (laughs) But why do you say that? Why do you say that? Why do you say okay? Because for Christians, what is death? Gain. Friends, when we get shot, we win. We win. We win by losing. So Jesus did that for us as an example. He wants us to follow in his footsteps. If we obey God rather than men and they're going to kill us for that, that's fine. That's fine. A day may come in our country where they say you're not allowed to preach the gospel. You can expect me to be in jail. (laughs) I hope to be in jail at that moment. When they tell me you're not allowed to preach the gospel, I will continue to preach the gospel. Because that's what I'm commanded to do by God. And to not do that would be to disobey him. And so if they're going to kill me or put me in jail, they can do that. And that goes for all of us. If you are a professing Christian, you may put your life on the line. And that's okay. It's okay. Do it because you must obey God rather than men. But listen, I think these exceptions are much more rare than we want to imagine. (laughs) These exceptions are much more rare than we want to imagine. Unless you can find a chapter and verse of a command for what you are being told not to do or told to do, you need to submit yourself to the governing authorities. That's an important statement. Unless there is a chapter and verse that tells you what you must do or not do from God, every other place you must submit yourself to the governing authorities. And why is that? Because I think we can have lots of opinions and lots of conscience issues and lots of things that we can sort of think about and those sort of preferences in the way that we would run the government. And the government can come to us and tell us, I'm not going to do this the way that your preference would desire. And we can say, well, I'm going to obey God rather than men. But that's not what God is saying here. That's not what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is submit to those things. Put yourself under them. Be in subjection to the governing authorities unless they call you to do something that violates the text of Scripture. Unless they tell you to do something where you can provide a chapter and verse for why it would be sin. So the summary concept of this whole section is that obedience to God is always required. And so long as the state is not calling us to disobey God, then our responsibility is to submit ourselves and obey the state. So that's the first implication. Second implication is this, participation in government, point B. I would highly encourage you to participate in government to the extent that you're able. What does that mean? It means you should vote. (laughs) The fact that you must obey the government doesn't mean that you can't participate in government activities, right? We should actually be doing that. We can lobby, we can sign petitions, we can do all those things. So long as what we are doing is legal, we can and should participate in the government and seek for the good of those who are around us. You can always participate in those ways. In fact, the great moral changes of the 19th and 20th century came from Christians who were participating in government. If you haven't heard the story of William Wilberforce, I would encourage you, go and listen to it. There's a sermon by John Piper about him. He participated in government, and he ended the slave trade in England. How legally he ended the slave trade. He didn't lead a revolution of slaves. He legally ended the slave trade because he was a Christian, and he loved people, and he knew that it was a violation of the second commandment to own a slave. 
In the early 20th century, child labor laws and the control over those things came from people who had biblical convictions about what was right and wrong. And so they went into government and participated in government to make those changes. But they did it legally. They did it legally. In fact, I would say that this is the fruit of lives and hearts that are trusting God's goodness in government. They look at the government and they say, God, I know you're sovereign over these things and now I'm going to go and I'm gonna do the very best that I can and God, if it's your will, change the way that things happen for your sake and for the sake of those who are suffering under injustice. Why is that? Why, why would I say that it's the heart that causes that? Because the true Christians believe what? They believe that God is good, (laughs) and they believe that he's the king, don't they? They believe that he's sovereign over every decision that occurs in humanity. In fact, look at Proverbs chapter 21. Turn there with me, Proverbs 21. Just look at verse 1. says this, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing statement? Like you want to talk about the sovereignty of God, the king's heart. What's the king's heart? His mind, his decisions, his motivations. It's like channels of water in the hand of God. He turns it off and on and moves it wherever he pleases. He is sovereign over every decision that government makes and he moves every king, every ruler, every authority. Every decision that is being made in government right now over us is coming ultimately from God who has the hearts of kings and authorities in his hands and he turns them wherever he pleases. And knowing that, what can we do? We can actively engage in government and pray that God would work in the hearts and minds of the rulers who are over us in order to change. We can actively seek God's power to help to protect the helpless and the needy. And we can do that trusting that God's goodness is over all of it, that if the answer is yes, then we would praise him for his sovereignty, and if the answer is no, then we will praise him for his sovereignty. Either way, God is good, and his goodness is over all that he does. That brings us to the final conclusion. How do we know that God is good? When government is bad, how do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good? How do you know that? It's hard, because Oftentimes, things don't feel good, do they? You all know this, when you had your first job and you got your first paycheck, and, and on the paycheck you think, I've worked this many hours, you got the calculation in your head, you have it dialed down to exactly the sense that you're going to get on your paycheck, and it comes, and it's never as much as you expected, is it? Why? Because there's taxes, and all of us saw those taxes at that moment, and you weren't pleased with that, right? No one was like, thank goodness. I love the infrastructural system in California. Of course I'm happy to pay taxes. This is great, right? None of us do that. Why? Because that's not our, our nature, right? We don't like this feeling of submission. And yet, what, what has God told us? That those things are good, right? How can we know that, not just that, but on the extreme level, how could the Roman Christians know that it was good as Nero was persecuting them? How could the Roman Christians know that it was good when they were being burnt to death? And for us, how can we know that God is good over us when what's happening around us governmentally is not necessarily what we would approve? How can we know that? 
The only way we can know that is by trusting that God loves us. If we doubt that God loves us, we will not believe that he is good. Will we? If we doubt that God is in control and that he loves us, we will not believe that the circumstances of this life are for our good. We will begin to doubt all of those things. Everything will fall apart and we will begin to say to ourselves, no, I refuse to submit to governing authorities because God must not be in control of something that's this painful for me. We have to believe that God loves us. And so here's the question. How do you know that God loves you even when the government is putting you to death? How do you know that God loves you? The answer is very simple, right? God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? He died for us. If Jesus died for us, we can trust him with every government institution and we can submit to them for his sake, can't we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we understand these are difficult things. Lord, for all of our hearts, Lord, it's hard. Yet, Lord, we know that you are good and that your goodness is over all that you do, even things that don't seem good. Lord, your goodness is over every detail of our lives, and that includes, Lord, the government that is over us. So, Lord, this morning, even as we consider Paul's instructions to us, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are submissive, hearts that are in subjection, hearts that desire, that long to glorify you by doing what it is that you have called us to do. Lord, just as your son stood before Pilate and brought you immense glory by pointing out that he had no authority, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to you so that your name would be loved and glorified and honored and that that would be our witness, Lord, our witness of your authority. Lord, we pray this for the sake of your son, who will someday be the king of the world, Lord, and your will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray and we long for that day. But Lord, during our sojourn on this earth, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that trust you, that trust your love for us because you've proven it once and for all at the cross. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray, amen.